This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Nine and a half hours of podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, with my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein, all together back in the studio it's in Matt's Washington. It's Matt's birthday. It is. Happy it birthday, Matt. It is Matt's birthday. How old are you, Matt? I'm 35. <laughs> How do you feel? Really old. My knee is sore. It's, uh, I'm, I'm a little cranky about, about young kids these days and their lack of perspective. Sounds like you're right on track. Uh, yes, yes, and ready to talk about... About your youth. About the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> I had not connected that our, our first segment is so good for an old man like you. I actually had a job in the booming labor market of the 1990s. What was your job? And it was, so I did two things, and they were both booming labor market things. One was I, I worked at a, a dot-com startup that was, it was called SoYouWanna.com. And uh, so you wanna, yeah, so you wanna.com. And it was, uh, you gotta remember the internet back then was anything.com. So, yeah, so this was a website where you were going to find out how to do things. So it's like, so you wanna tie a tie, or so you wanna like brew beer in your bathtub. And so it's like about.com. Yeah, but but instead of paying, being like this click farm with this like pathetic CPM, blah blah blah, I friend of mine's older brother was involved in this company. And so they were just paying random freelancers, including one of the founders, younger brother's friends, like a dollar a word <laughs> to write these articles. Wait, what was your So You Want article? Yeah, yeah. what did you teach us how to do? Uh, I think I did the tie-tying one because oh. I, I went to uh, uh, like fancy prep school where I, I had to your learn a, a lot are of tie knots. I have to say. Um, and that's, that's how things were done. I want to note, though, for, the, for those not here in the studio audience, I'm the only member of the Weeds currently wearing a tie. That, that is, is true. That yes. is true. But starting in fifth grade, I, I wore a tie every day. So what does for, this tell us about the 90s economy, man? It was awesome. Wait, um, what else did you say you want aside from the tie? Oh, God, I can't remember. It was, it oh, was, you're not that the, old. The point is a dollar a word. <laughs> Which is like what so like what you get paid for writing for like a very nice magazine. Yeah, that's yeah. a magazine like, that's feature like, rate. That's, yes. like, that's like, yeah, like the Atlantic for print right. might give you that. Yeah, it was... It was. I mean, this. I had no qualifications, and it was garbage. You would just Google this now, and you probably should. I, I learned to tie a tie from How to Tie Tie dot net, I believe. Yeah, which is one of the great websites. Is of this the content era. still on the internet? Uh, no, in show notes. No, and I, I would oh. really recommend How to Tie a Tie dot net. That's a great source of, of tie knotting, and I've I've always thought, frankly, President Obama should read through it and see that his foreign hand knots are not very presidential and. Um, what I, I don't think how to tie a tie.net gives you enough of the philosophy of different knots. So your point about the foreign hand not being presidential, I did the foreign hand for a while too because I thought that seemed easier. But it, it took a while for somebody to take me aside and explain what was signaled by, by different tie knots. Yeah. Because I grew up in a house where nobody wore ties, nobody liked ties, and I never got the talk. Yeah, Maybe well, we need a tie explainer. It's, it's California. And, you know, he's Obama's from Hawaii, but it's, I, I think... I'm not sure they even sell ties. This is my, my fundamental critique of the Obama administration. <laughs> anyway, the point to is today's weeds is about an hour and a half on ties. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're going deep. Um, ties of the 90s. People have been saying we should include Sarah Moore, so I thought I thought men's neckties. <laughs> yeah, I have some strong opinions on that. That's what, what we needed. No, so Hillary Clinton, in a kind of weird, off-the-cuff way, was talking about how... 
she's going to put Bill Clinton in charge of revitalizing the economy because he knows how to get that done, which I think is not really what's going to happen if she becomes president. But it's clearly her trying to draw links between herself and her policy agenda and the economy when her husband was president, which really was very strong. The unemployment rate got incredibly low. The overall share of the population who had a job reached an all-time high. We've never gotten back there. Wages grew consistently. It was the only period where we had, you know, really consistent wage growth since um, the late 1960s. Inflation was very low. Because of the sort of strong economic situation, we got into a big budget surplus. It was a a period in time in which uh, the the American economy was like the envy of the world and and people in other countries would write hot takes about like what they should learn from the United States. Whereas in the 80s, we were all supposed to learn from Japan and now we're all supposed to learn from like Germany and China. In the 90s, America was was the the great role model for the world. But I think there have always been questions since the 90s of like how much credit the Clinton administration actually deserves for any of this. Some of that grounded in just the kind of baseline skepticism that obviously whenever anything good happens, you know, whoever happens to be in charge in politics is like, oh, yeah, that's all thanks to me. And it's always less true than the person says. But there have also been, you know, always some some really kind of stronger critiques than that, some from the left and some from the right. And I did a, a piece, you know, sort of looking at this and reached the conclusion. I was a little surprised, actually, how persuaded I was when I spoke to some economists who had worked in the Clinton administration, that there really were things that they did, that they contributed in a meaningful way to, to that kind of growth, and that don't have totally unambiguous like lessons for the future, but that at least looking back, it really was policy choices made in the White House had a meaningful impact on that economic boom. Well, how much of an impact? Because I think this is a good place to start. Before we dig in, we should talk a little bit about magnitude because I've seen different people break this down. I've seen Brad DeLong try to break this down. So as a percentage of our economic boom, how much do you think is attributable to Clinton being in the White House versus, let's say, a generic president, right? I'm not saying versus a president who does some kind of total catastrophic economic mismanagement. I just mean, you know, a a normal person maybe who made – could have made different decisions. The question of magnitudes is hard because it depends in part on what you are thinking about, right? So if you you have a period in which there's like 3.4, 3.5% annual GDP growth. And so how much of that is thanks to Clinton administration policies? It's a relatively small amount. I mean, a a third, I think, would be a generous estimate of, of sort of the credit they deserve. On the other hand, if you're saying, well, what was the amount of extra growth that was happening then that made the economy extraordinarily strong compared to how it was in the aughts or or how it is right now, it's about in that same range of of, of that third, right? So the economy most of the time when you have competent administration grows and chugs along at a, you know, little kind of pace here, right? And it's not like you need amazing presidenting to get any kind of forward momentum. What we're really talking about is that there was a higher level of business investment in the 90s than we've seen in recent years. Companies were putting cash into 
expanding their operations and hiring a lot of people. The amount of capital goods that were available to each worker was going up, whereas right now it's going down. That contributed to productivity. Can you just say real quick what, what capital goods are? Oh, sure. I, you know, ca- capital goods is like stuff. Buildings, equipment, computers, things like that. So right now, if if you look at it, the depreciation of existing machinery and and buildings especially is going on at a faster rate than companies are adding new stuff. You can delve into some questions about measurement and how you should deal with computers and and things like that. But the point is, is that we're, we're building less new stuff than is kind of wasting away through age. And in the 90s, it was it was the opposite. And some of that was fiber optic cable boondoggles. But some of it was just like, Let's build a new shopping mall. Let's build a new office. Let's uh, get some computers for the guys in the back office. So um, can you talk through, you did these interviews with the economists who worked in the Clinton administration. Like, What struck you as the most convincing argument they made? Like, what were the particular policies that you feel like are the backdrop? To me, the evidence that sort of changed the way I was thinking about this is the fact that that 90s boom didn't really happen in other countries. That that period of 1995 through 2000 that was a really good time for the United States was not a particularly great time for the economy of Western Europe, of Canada, of Japan. Hmm. So people want to say, look, Bill Clinton is not responsible for the Internet, which is clearly true. But then you, you look at it and you say, well, look, this technology was existing everywhere. And people used it everywhere. And like email is nice to have everywhere, but it doesn't automatically generate a corporate investment boom. And that's what you see from from this kind of cross-national type comparison, whereas these sort of broad trends do impact all the rich countries simultaneously. So you say, well, what happened in the United States in particular then? And two things happened. One is that for really the only time since Ronald Reagan came in, the country sort of consistently followed a countercyclical budget process in like the way a textbook would say that you should, that when Bill Clinton originally took office, interest rates were quite high by contemporary standards. They reduced the budget deficit, helped bring interest rates down. Then as interest rates came down, the economy started growing. And then there was a a monetary policy element where we can sort of talk about allocation between the president and, and the Federal Reserve. But as unemployment started to get lower, but there was not yet big inflation, Alan Greenspan took a chance on the idea that we should go for an economic boom and, you know, let the unemployment rate keep dropping, let wages rise. And it worked out pretty well. There, there wasn't this inflationary scare. And there was debate inside the Fed about this, that there were people, including uh, the, the current chair, Janet Yellen, who said, oh, you know, we got to sort of cut this off, right, and, and try to slow the economy down because inflation might come. And Greenspan said, said, no, we shouldn't. If you look back into what were people arguing about in the 90s, one big thing was to say, well, Bill Clinton doesn't deserve credit for this. Alan Greenspan deserves credit for it. And I think that's fair enough as far as it goes. At the same time, Alan Greenspan was appointed, reappointed to that position by Bill Clinton. I mean, the presidents are broadly responsible for well, who there, they put in. There was also a fascinating back and forth between the 
Clinton administration and, and, and Greenspan, where something that when you listen to left wing critiques of the Clinton administration, and, and I'm, I don't mean even ones just now that focus more on welfare reform and the crime bill, I mean contemporaneously, there was a feeling that Bill Clinton abandoned or sold out the economic populism of the 1992 campaign in order to make this deal with Alan Greenspan, right. where rather than doing a lot of investment and stimulus to what was in 92, uh, you know, it was recovering, but it was a bit of a weak economy, particularly in the labor market. But Clinton came in, he was persuaded that if they could cut the budget deficit, Alan Greenspan would lower interest rates and that would lead to, to this big boom. And to do that, he had to make a, particularly among portions of his base, an unpopular choice of not doing a bunch of things that, you know, I think were important to have done, important to liberals and were an important part of his campaign. And that's, I think, very much for folks who've kind of followed this sort of thing, the origins of the fight between, you know, what you might call like the Rubenite wing of the Democratic Party and the Robert Reich wing of the of the Democratic Party. Like that was the fight between them, that Reich believed more in investment and, and, and we should be doing the spending. And, and Rubin really wanted to basically do this two-step with, with Greenspan. We don't know what would have happened if, if they had gone the other way. So I'm not I'm not taking down Reich's argument here. But there was definitely a decision made on the part of the Clinton administration to work with Alan Greenspan so that Greenspan would do this thing. Right. And I think you can always say, I mean, you can look at anyone and say, look, maybe they could have done better. And I think that would be Robert Reich's argument. And that's an interesting debate that, that one can have. But as you're saying, I mean, the point is, this wasn't an accident that monetary policy was being helpful to the Clinton economy, that they made a conscious decision to forego certain campaign promises in order to make this coordinated fiscal monetary effort. And it worked out quite well. And then if you compare that to the Obama administration, not just to the thinking in the White House, but to the dynamics with Congress and, and all of that, we really did not see that, right? There was a, a stimulus bill, but then when it turned out that the economy was worse than they had thought it was, all the same reasons that would have motivated an initial stimulus indicated that you should do like a secondary one or an even bigger one. What the Federal Reserve was saying it wanted at that point was more aggressive fiscal policy. And the White House was not able to get that done. I mean, they weren't unaware of the fact that that's what Ben Bernanke was saying, but the congressional dynamic was different. The Obama administration chose to fulfill its campaign pledges in a way that the Clinton administration did not. Um, mm -hmm. We have a health care bill that is, as Joe Biden says, a big fucking deal. I, I don't think it's crazy decision that they made that they should do the stuff that they had campaigned on, whereas Bill Clinton really had to throw overboard a, a substantial amount of, of his agenda. But, you know, it's hard to be president. You have to make certain kinds of choices. And I think that, you know, to the extent that Bill Clinton, Clinton people want to say they made some tough calls here. They made some partnerships with the Federal Reserve. They cut some deals in Congress. The aspiration of all of that was that they were going to get more aggressive monetary stimulus to sort of back up the labor market, that investment was going to come through the corporate sector. All that stuff happened. The poverty rate fell quite a bit. One version of this debate came up when Hillary Clinton and, and Bernie Sanders were talking about welfare reform and Bill Clinton said as a defense of his record on welfare, well, we had record low poverty when I was president. I think if you want to say we had record low poverty at that point because of welfare reform, that's crazy and you would really be stretching the evidence. Uh, but it is true that that happened. At the end of the day, 
most people, both middle class people and poor people, were better off just having a really robust labor market than they were with this like kind of sort of crappy welfare program. Although, to be fair, I think a lot of people would argue that that's a false choice. Oh, no, it is absolutely a false choice. I mean, I I think I think Bill Clinton trying to frame it as like an all purpose rejoinder to everything. Right. It doesn't doesn't work. I think one of the critiques of the Clinton administration that holds a certain amount of water and and I find welfare reform actually to be I don't think it was done well, but I'm sympathetic to a lot of what was trying to be achieved there. But I do think that one of the critiques of the Clinton administration is that they did not use that good economy for some of the things they should have used it for, right? I think that, that when, when people really come out that there's agreement that the economy was boomed under them. But differently than I think where Barack Obama's instincts ultimately lie were Clinton because of how he thought the politics of the period were, Clinton because of what was possible in dealing with the Republican Congress. I think a lot of liberals blame Clinton for using the dividend of that sort of peace and prosperity in ways they ultimately didn't didn't like. Yeah, and I think – I mean it's an enormous contrast between the Clinton administration and the Obama administration, which is that Bill Clinton left office as a much more popular president than – it seems likely Barack Obama will, in part because economic performance under Clinton was much better than under Obama, which in part is good luck, but I would argue is in part policy choices. But the flip side is that Barack Obama is going to leave a much more significant legacy in terms of primarily his health care program, but also some substantial changes to higher education financing, to climate regulation. You know, the, the Clinton administration put a lot of eggs in that labor market basket. And that kind of stuff, like, it's great while it lasts, but then it's kind of gone, yes, right? Yes, George W. Bush made an omelet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they did too to some extent. I mean, uh, one thing I talk about at the end of the piece is that we should reduce the budget deficit because we have an understanding with the Federal Reserve about what we want to do with interest rates in the labor market. Is like, that's one thing. That's one idea. This other idea that you really saw in Al Gore's 2000 campaign that was like, well, we just have to run a budget surplus because we should is actually a quite different idea. But, you know, in the sort of dialogue between politics and policy analysis, you can see how one idea from 1993 became a different idea seven years later. And you see it in Bill Clinton's rhetoric. I mean, it's not to blame Al Gore. By the end, they're just like talking about the budget surplus as a good in and of itself, which is really no basis for. And I don't think the actual economists involved at the time would particularly defend. They were trying to come up with a political argument against tax cuts. They didn't want to embrace a left-wing agenda of like, let's expend this surplus on, I don't know, like cool trains or, or something like that. So they came up with like, well, let's just bank it. But that didn't really make any sense. It didn't work out in the end. And it's sort of interesting to think about what would have happened if we had actually pursued that agenda into the the 21st century. The federal government just like socking away giant piles of money for no reason. So, I mean, one interesting contrast there that I hadn't thought through until you were talking about this is just kind of like the tie or lack of tie between popularity and delivering on campaign promises where you kind of have Obama like delivers on health care, like he's doing all this stuff. And like you said, he's going to go out as a less popular president. And then you have Clinton who kind of like throws it all overboard and is still like very beloved by a lot of liberals. But anyway, one thing I wanted to 
ask you, Matt, about since you've been thinking a lot about this is like the space right after the Clinton administration and how you think about it. So this space like 2000, 2001, where I assume like that's where So You Wanna like probably goes out of business and is no longer paying a dollar per word. Because I think that does come into a lot of the critiques of the Clinton administration that like, yes, you had this good period, but like, look what you kind of left in its place. How do you kind of and the people you talk to kind of in the Clinton administration think about that time period, like right after. Yeah, well, you know, this is an interesting thing. I mean, I think a lot of people have this intuition that when there's a boom and then the boom ends, you wind up worse off than you were before, right? A kind of like a a hangover theory of of the business cycle where like maybe if we had partied less hard, you know, we'd we'd feel better the next morning. I often feel that way. Yeah. I I, I, think, I mean not about the business cycle. Right. I mean I think that's definitely true about partying and, and you wanna be you wanna be moderate about it. <laughs> At our ripe age. I don't I don't really think it's very persuasive to think that the economy operates that way. So like one thing you had going on in nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, is people were laying more fiber optic cable than was economically justified by just the kind of boom in asset prices. So then there's a crash, and there's all this dark fiber lying around. But at worst, that's— Dark fiber? Yeah, it was called dark fiber. That's a fucking awesome yeah. name for that. Yeah, so dark, dark it's fiber— It's better than abandoned houses. Right. Dark <laughs> houses. It doesn't have the same ring to no, it. It's dark, dark fiber. fiber is amazing. Well, for houses, they call it shadow inventory. So there's always— that's actually okay. There's, there's always some pretty cool start a band called Dark Fiber. But there was nothing— bad about the dark fiber. There were just some years in the early to mid-aughts when there were fiber optic cables laying around that people weren't using, and eventually they came into use. The economy obviously took a downturn, and then I think people would say, Clinton-type people, I think really all kinds of Democrats and liberals would say, look, the George W. Bush administration handled the federal budget in a sort of senseless way and decided that tax cuts that were very regressively structured was like the thing that it wanted to do. And if you had put that money into something flatter that put more money into the pockets of of middle class and and low income people, or if you had took some of that money and put it into public works of enduring importance, that that would have been a lot, lot better. You know, the private sector is not going to be in an investment boom all the time. And when the private sector doesn't want to invest, you want the public sector to invest. The Bush administration chose to expend its resources on an invasion of Iraq, on a sort of failed reconstruction of Afghanistan, on a homeland security type buildup. You know, they have their reasons for that stuff and, you know, they, they can they can defend themselves. But I think in terms of people criticizing the Clinton administration, the main thing I would say about it is that it goes back to this legacy question. The problem with centering your whole presidency on macroeconomic management is that it goes away literally the moment you walk out of the office. And that's not true of other kinds of of policy legacies, right? Let me bring this back now to Hillary Clinton, because I think this is a good framework to close the circle. I am not uh, as ancient as you are, (laughs) so I don't have super vivid memories of the 1992 election. I don't remember the degree to which Clinton ran on this kind of economic theory. But but listening to, to your explanation of this, which I find persuasive, two things strike me immediately. One is that we do not have high interest rates that yes. could be brought down 
Um, it is a little bit hard to see where that big opportunity is, except if you still argue, as many economists do, but increasingly few of them, that there's just a tremendous amount of demand side that we can make up very quickly. But so one is, what is the analog to this for a Hillary Clinton administration? And two, have you heard Hillary Clinton articulate a macroeconomic theory that matches the Bill Clinton administration's idea. I mean, when she says she'll put Bill Clinton in charge of it, in charge of what? In charge of what strategy? Yeah, I mean, I I really wonder what she means by that. I I mean, for one thing, to the best that we can tell from this sort of time period, Hillary Clinton was not president, but she was more or less a senior member of the administration. And she appears to have been on the losing side of those internal arguments. So one way of interpreting this is that Hillary has decided that she was wrong along, and that's what she means by saying Bill Clinton will be in charge of this. But I don't really see a lot of evidence for that. In everything that she has said and everything that I have heard out of her campaign, she has always indicated, frankly, that she has a somewhat more populist view of the economy and of economics than than Bill Clinton and, and her team did. And I would expect that you will see her administration continue to pursue more efforts to directly increase wages in in the economy. You know, she has spoken out very forcefully about minimum wage increases, about equal pay regulations, about things like this overtime rule that the Obama administration is doing. Uh, She has just talked a lot about wages very, very specifically and has not talked a lot, frankly, about big picture macroeconomic stabilization type type stuff. So sometimes I think people just say things on the campaign trail that don't particularly have that much direct implication. Uh, It's been a little obscured by the fact that she's running against Bernie Sanders in a primary, but that within the range of views that mainstream Democrats hold, that she is simply somewhat to the left and somewhat to the more populist stance than, than her husband was, in part because many people's thinking has changed, right? I mean, if you talk to to Larry Summers over the past two years, uh, he sounds very different from how he sounded 15 years ago. He's changed his mind. The world has changed. Politics have changed. And I think Hillary Clinton sort of reflects that. And on the campaign trail, invoking Bill serves a a lot of different purposes, but it, it does not strike me that that's like a promise with any real content. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, So right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, That way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com slash weeds.
All right. All right. Content. Content. <laughs> Sarah, break. how about some more content? <laughs> some more content. How about some Obamacare content? Yeah. Ooh, I do Who's like Obamacare remember, content. Who's Zubig? Yeah. Remember all those lawsuits? It turns out they still are around. Um, oh, so it's it's been a weirdly big week for Obamacare lawsuit news, which I guess isn't that weird. You could probably say that like <laughs> many weeks over the past six years and have a decent chance it was true. But there are two lawsuits you know that are important that you, we had big news on over the past week. The first, well, let's start with the Supreme Court decision, Zubik versus Burwell, which was not much of a decision at all, which was probably the most bizarre outcomes, at least of the Obamacare decisions. And this was an amazing just decision. Just a weird thing for the Supreme Court. So you have basically this challenge. Um, this is on the birth control mandate, which the um, religious nonprofits, so Catholic charities and universities, they have an exemption from, but they need to file paperwork with the government saying, hey, we you know, have a religious opposition to birth control. And they essentially objected to filing that paperwork. They said it made them complicit in providing birth control. So this was a kind of another religious freedom challenge. Like, should we have to file this paperwork? And the Supreme Court did something kind of bizarre and amazing where they, you know, they heard oral arguments like normal. And then about a month later, they send out this document to the two sides asking for um, comment on this other proposal. So they basically like float this hypothetical like, hey, so what if the way that people got birth control worked a little bit differently? What if you just buy an insurance plan without birth control? And then the insurer goes, aha, this plan does not have birth control. And then they go to the employees and say, we'll give you free birth control. And the religious groups say, yeah, that could work. And the administration says more begrudgingly, like, I guess, fine, whatever, you know, it's not ideal. Essentially, what you see the Supreme Court doing is they send the case back to the lower courts saying, well, it seems like there's another way you could work this out. So, you know, you, you all figure this out. We floated a suggestion. But it's like this weird, almost like regulation by court thing going on. Isn't this literally legislating from the bench? It, it, I mean, it, they've basically changed the way the law works. I wouldn't say it's legislating. I would say it's regulating from the bench. Fair enough. So, like, maybe I don't know if the distinction matters. They're not. I don't think they're changing at the end of the day. Like, who is getting contraceptives? HHS came up with like their best stab at like a religious accommodation after the Hobby Lobby decision, and the Supreme Court is basically like, well, we came up with a better way to do it, and it's just like very bizarre. Like this morning, I was reading the document that went out to the two parties. It's almost like, so let's say you have this. Friend. And they're in this situation, like it walks through this like weird hypothetical example. Um, so that essentially gets sent back to the lower courts. You know, it's not clear what it means for Obamacare at this point. It doesn't really set any precedent. And it speaks to kind of like the weirdness of an eight member Supreme Court right now. So I don't know if this would be a little different if we had nine member court where Scalia was still there. I have two questions on this. Yes. One, who wrote the opinion? It was of the court. It was in of the court yes. opinion. Okay. Um, yes. So it's a consensus. So it was, it was uh, all eight of them signed on Got to it. this. Okay. Um, so yes, it was like a very consensus right. document. From the, the, court. the other is that some Obamacare lawsuits are very big and some are quite modest in their scope. Mm-hmm. This one has felt to me from the beginning as a targeting mm-hmm. a very specific benefit for members of religious nonprofits. And I guess in theory for members of nonprofits more broadly, but probably religious nonprofits. Mm-hmm. We're just not talking about that many people, are we? You know, I don't know the universe of people. I think your instinct is right. This is not like um, King versus Burwell, where you're talking about millions of people. It it was seven different petitioners challenging in this case. The universe could get big. Like if you thought of every Catholic hospital and university getting in on this Mm -hmm. issue, that would probably be a big universe of people. But you don't see that happening. Um, I think it's actually it's less big 
for Obamacare and more big for religious freedom, for kind of legislating issues of like what counts right. as an infringement of religious liberty. Yeah, what what okay. what was King King versus? So King versus Burwell was um, one of my favorite Obamacare <laughs> challenges. One of my top five. For <laughs> one sure. of my top five for sure. <laughs> um, that was last year a challenge to whether the subsidies could be distributed on the federal exchange, and this had the about ninety percent of Obamacare enrollees are getting some sort of subsidy. So this essentially had the uh, the possible effect of making insurance unaffordable for millions of Obamacare enrollees, but it was decided against and the subsidies are still here today. So, but there's another subsidy lawsuit that's also but so, But so in, in terms of this this birth control issue, though, right, it, it, am I right in thinking that, like, the sort of the long-term Obamacare vision is that eventually we'll, like, all be getting insurance on these exchanges, the the idea is to try to set up like a whole better health insurance universe in which this issue would not even be relevant. I think it takes steps there, but it didn't dismantle like like I would see that as like the hundred year view, not like the next few decades view. Right. I, I mean, not so much work. what does the law right. do, but what do the people who made the law think we ought to do? This is the wonks case for Obamacare during drafting and even during passage. And I remember writing a lot about this and being angry we didn't have a national exchange because it would make that easier. And there are all these things. I mean, right now, large employers cannot join the exchanges. If you're an employer of over 100, you cannot just naturally join the exchanges. At some point, it might be 2017, if I remember the law correctly, states could mm -hmm. certify that you could, but that would have to be an affirmative decision on the part of the state. I mean, there's a whole set of things. What I would say in practice, though, is that as much as conceptually that seems true, my read of what has happened since Obamacare has actually been passed is that it is cut in the opposite direction. The exchanges have proven smaller and a little less stable than was expected. So they're not offering the sort of big lure. It, it, it isn't clear why you would want to join the exchanges in a lot of cases, they states have not embraced them enthusiastically. And as such, it seems unlikely that states are going to enthusiastically try to expand them. And there's been virtually zero support anywhere in Congress for, for expanding the model, mm -hmm. right? You see on the left, a revitalization of support for single payer. You see that around the Bernie Sanders campaign. On the right, continued desire for full repeal of Obamacare, even as a lot of Republicans using the Ryan bill want to bring the basic structure of Obamacare to Medicare. But I am struck by how little constituency there is for anything approaching the scaling the exchange model. So I, I do think that was one of the arguments. It was mm -hmm. a transition system. And if the exchanges worked, you'd see them become the basis of a future system. And maybe over a 15 or 20-year time frame, that will prove much more true or a 10-year time frame. But here we are. Obamacare went into effect 13, yeah? The expansion 2014. 2014. Yeah. So, I mean, we're a couple years into it now. And it actually seems to me to be trending in the opposite direction. No, it is. Sarah, I mean, the yeah, CBO has found that one of the reasons the exchanges are smaller than expected is because employers haven't pushed um, employees onto them at the rates initially expected. And bringing it back to the Zubik case, you know, it that case suggests like one of the reasons like why you want to decouple employment and insurance. If you're a woman who uses birth control, you, even if you work at a Catholic institution, it seems like you would want to shop for a plan that covers birth control. So it makes to me like a pretty clear case for why that it's always been like an uneasy partnership. But, you know, I think what gets less voice is the case against decoupling is it's a lot of work to shop for health insurance. Like it's a lot of work to go into the marketplace and look through all these plans. And I think like we like to talk about the idea of choice. But, you know, there's something I think 
that people actually like an employer saying like, okay, you get option A or option B. And like, you don't feel like it's on you as much. Like the shopping experience is kind of being taken care of by someone else. And, you know, I don't think it leads to the best shopping decisions. We end up with more robust coverage than we might want. But I think that's kind of like a small point that doesn't get as much attention, but can help explain why you don't have as much. But, but let me cut at this from the other direction, because I think I think what you just said is, is true. But then there's the other piece of it. The great mystery of healthcare politics in America is why do employers want this role, right? It is a huge pain in the ass. It requires them to have these big HR departments. It requires them to do this right. painful insurance shopping for a lot of smaller employers and mid-sized employers. They have no expertise at this, right? Like they are suddenly having to choose healthcare for however many employees they have. They often don't know much about it. They see huge premium increases in a given year. It's a really bad system and they end up on the hook for it. And employers are always angry about healthcare. They're always complaining about healthcare costs. But then they actually never, when it comes down to it, want to leave the system. They don't support things like single payer. They don't even really support you know big efforts to just devolve it to national exchanges. There is often a lot of uh, affirmant around the sort of employer and, and employer conference market. And, and Sarah, you've mm-hmm. been to a lot of these conferences too, and you always will get the heads of HRs of these big companies talking about, you know, how bad the, the, the status quo is, but they don't want to leave. And to me, like the real question isn't what did consumers want? Because consumers often don't get that choice. If the employer thinks that they should have a higher deductible, they just get a higher deductible. The employer mm-hmm. thinks that they should all be on the exchange. They would all just end up on the exchange. But what really seems to be to be the key is that employers have not looked at the exchanges and said, I want in on that. They have not looked at that and said, I would like to downsize my HR market, convince the state to let me onto the exchange, and then just let my employees do the shopping. Mm-hmm. And the mechanism by which the exchanges would really grow is employers clamoring to just be on them so they could outsource these functions to the state exchanges and just like put it on their employees. And it just keeps not happening. Yes. I mean, one thing, one reason I could see a large company not wanting to drop is it essentially like levels the playing field between them and a small company. Whereas right now, you know, if you're a large company, your HR department is like actually an asset you have to recruit people because you can negotiate with big health plans and you can like offer better benefits than your smaller competitors down the street. So I think right now it actually gives them a competitive advantage. So that may be one reason you don't see the dropping. I do, however, want to get to the other Obamacare lawsuit because, you know, why not throw a few more lawsuits? So the other suit we had news on that was actually pretty surprising news was um, House versus Burwell, which is a challenge um, before John Boehner left office that he filed basically challenging that Obamacare is illegally distributing billions of dollars of subsidies to the lowest income enrollees. And so these are actually different than the King versus Burwell subsidies. Those subsidies are for premiums. Um, Let's say you have a $100 premium, you get a $50 subsidy because of your income. These are subsidies for, I think it's people under 200% of the poverty line, but I might fix that in show notes. Um, And these are subsidies that help with um, deductibles and with cost sharing. So like you get a subsidized copayment, maybe normally it's $10, but because you're lower income, you get a $5 co-payment. And the House lawsuit charges that this money was never appropriated, that they never formally set aside this money. That is the House's job to set aside money. And because they did not formally appropriate it, that it's being distributed illegally. And a district court judge here in D.C. decided in their favor last week, which was, I think, a surprising ruling. There's a lot of questions in this lawsuit about standing, you know, whether they even were harmed in the first place. Like, what harm does the House experience from this happening? But, you know, they were given standing and they were ruled in favor of their merits last week. So now 
we have yet another Obamacare challenge kind of rising up to the appellate court level, probably within the next six months. That's the next level before Supreme Court. But you have this other kind of lawsuit brewing in the background now. And at this point, what would happen if the government ultimately lost that lawsuit? So Nick Bagley at Incidental Economist, I think, is the best writer on it. So I kind of rely on his analysis here. And what he has said is basically um, it, it would be like the insurance companies who would really lose, that people are still guaranteed these subsidized rates. If the government can't appropriate the money, insurance companies essentially end up eating it seems to be the outcome of it. So it, it seems like enrollees are actually not as at risk as they were in the King lawsuit. But, you know, insurance companies, you know, would they pull out of the market? Would they decide not to sell? Like, it could throw some kind of tumult into the law if, you know, it decided in the challenger's favor. And this is part of the sort of larger unexpected politics mm-hmm. of Obamacare. When they were putting this together, Democrats understood that almost no Republicans were going to vote with them. And then they're like, no Republicans mm-hmm. were going to vote with them. But I think they were not really foreseeing that this kind of sabotage type I- initiatives. I mean, I, I don't want to guess it too pejoratively, but but like the actual outcome here is not something that House Republicans are going to look at and say like, this is great. America is way better off now. It's going to be a bad outcome. And then they're going to say this bad outcome shows that we should repeal Obamacare. And that's a much more dedicated form of political opposition than we have normally seen to, to well, legislative form of basically sabotage. That's what I said. Well, in the yeah. courts have... Then I, yeah. then, I, then I tried to soften it, but it's like, <laughs> you just... You well, it's don't. like, we are going to make Obamacare work poorly, drive insurers out of the marketplaces, and when, then when that happens, say Obamacare is a huge failure that needs to be repealed and can't ever work. Yeah. Well, and the courts have proved like a much friendlier venue for this than mm-hmm. I think anyone expected when Obamacare passed. Like, you know, I remember when the law passed... There was this lawsuit filed by some attorney generals. It got really small coverage. The New York Times, Washington Post had this teeny tiny item on this lawsuit challenging the individual mandate that then, you know, went Mm -hmm. to the Supreme Court, was like, you know, ended up making the Medicaid expansion optional, which really affected Obamacare. And was a huge surprise. It was a huge surprise. You know, you had King versus Burwell, like another lawsuit that I think at the beginning was written off as like, you know, not a serious challenge. Again, goes to the Supreme Court. The courts have proved much more sympathetic and interested in the challenges to Obamacare than I think many people expected when the law had passed. And I think that's encouraged, well, let's try this other one. And like, let's try this other one and to keep throwing these challenges at the law. Or I, I would read it in some ways even a, a little differently from that, that I think one thing we're used to having in American politics is the courts operating as a kind of a pressure release valve for certain kinds of things. So that if there's a legislative stampede for like, let's ban flag burning or, you know, wh- whatever, you can vote for it because you feel like that's the position you want to take. Recognizing that the judicial system, like including the kinds of judges who your party approves of, are going to strike it down. And then you can say like, well, you know, that was that and and kind of like move on, right? It's not obvious to me that elected mm-hmm. Republicans necessarily really, really wanted this litigation to be quite as successful as it was, that like signing on for the litigation was a total no-brainer because people really wanted to show they were in the fight against Obamacare. But if the very first of these had just been dismissed by everyone and they'd just been like, yeah, this doesn't work. The only way to destroy dastardly Obamacare is for Republican Party elected officials to score big wins at the polls. I'm not sure that would have like broken hearts at 
at the RNC. But it's like everybody mm-hmm. wanted to not be the guy who tries to stop the bus. And you see when John Roberts ultimately was, right, it was very costly to him in terms mm-hmm. of his standing mm-hmm. in the in the conservative movement. You right? see there was a piece this week of somebody being saying that John Roberts created Donald Trump by upholding Obamacare. Yeah, right, right. And like that's like, like nobody <laughs> – Nobody One of America's greatest hot takes. Well, it's just nobody ever wants to be that person, right? When there's an internal group dynamic that's like going a little bit off the rails, it's in every, and there's no clear leader of the group. It's in everyone's interest for somebody else to be like, guys, we like we have to stop this and go try something else. And and John Roberts played that role, and it's like not been a great outcome for him. But it's much better for like Mitch McConnell. Right. That he didn't have to be the guy who said, you know, we, we have to give up on this. It's the American political system is very complicated and it's very challenging for the people who operate in it to try to convey to their supporters the idea of like, I am with you, but I do not have the capacity to do what you want in a way that all things considered will be constructive. It's much easier to say like, yeah, 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 absolutely. And then have someone else kill it. <laughs> all right. Is that our Obamacare update? Straight I think that's our... our Obamacare update. Okay, straight But to I our... think we need a research paper update. Oh, I can do that too, I think. Oh, good. Because um, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for. Um, so going straight to our research paper. Um, so this week, we're looking at a really interesting paper from the Lancet, a British medical journal. And um, they have a really interesting study of about 40 years of abortion rates all across the world, which is just in itself, you know, a data set appears to have taken a long time to put together. And basically what they find, you know, the takeaway for me was they show that in the developed world and countries in Europe and countries in North America, the abortion rate has really fallen very significantly over the past 40 years that were at all time lows for abortion rates here in European countries. And you at the same time, you see kind of developed countries, you know, you don't see the same declines. You see rates either holding constant or rates going up a little bit in um, Latin America, in the Caribbean, in um, some Asian and African developing countries. But one of the most interesting takeaways, you know, I had from this paper is what they tried to understand, you know, what's different about these countries that, you know, do or don't have high and low abortion rates, you know, and one thing they looked at, you know, is how developed the countries are. And another thing they looked at was anti-abortion laws. And one of the kind of interesting findings of this paper, which is kind of the biggest abortion data set we've seen in a while, is that it essentially shows that anti-abortion laws don't seem to correlate with lower abortion rates. The thing that correlates with lower abortion rates is better access to contraceptives. And so I think that's, you know, an important kind of and powerful finding, one that relates to international regulation of abortion and regulation of abortion in the United States about, you know, what sort of policies do and don't work when you're trying to reduce abortion rates. I think what is interesting about the study, aside from the headline result, which, as you say, is is, is powerful, is I think it speaks to a, a difficulty people have in arguing about values-driven political issues, which is to say that people want it to be the case that the things they think are moral are also effective. <laughs> but sometimes the things you think are moral are just not all that effective. And I think people often have a lot of trouble separating those things out. So it could be that you know having anti-abortion laws 
and having, you know, not not mm-hmm. very lax contraceptive laws, if you believe that abortion and, and contraception are immoral, it, it's a it's a moral equilibrium. Even if you have to figure out other ways to get to your sort of practical, like mm-hmm. cut, cutting of abortion, like making sure there are no clinics and whatever. Um, and I think that one thing that's interesting about the study is it is it forces some of that reckoning, right? I think the way that a lot of supporters of of choice will use this study, and and correctly so, is to say, look. Even if you are anti-abortion, just trying to crack down on abortions doesn't help you that much. That you know, the, the way to do it is to join with us on making contraceptives much, much, much more available to people. And I think that, you know, that makes a kind of sense, but it also imagines a world where what everybody really agrees on here is that like what they're trying to do is just reduce the the, the total number of abortions. Where I, I think a lot of the times this is a a place where people are playing out understandably, their values, their religious beliefs. And so I'm not sure how susceptible it is to this kind of uh, empirical intervention. Although, I mean, we've seen, I mean, we, we there was a good Sarah Cliff uh, Vox content about this, that abortion is an issue in which the mass public's views are very mushy, mm-hmm. right? So in a, I'm giving a speech and I want people to vote for me sense, it's like a really promising terrain for a kind of mixed message well, the old Bill Clinton safe, legal, and, and rare rhetoric, right? right? There's like there's like a real market for that. And then to position yourself as like a left of center viewpoint that like we're doing all this contraceptive stuff and, and blah, 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 blah. But it's very polarized on the elite level, which is where I think ultimately that kind of rhetorical strategy ran aground, right? That like people who think about this a lot have developed like two big clashing cosmic worldviews that have less to do with mm-hmm. abortion per se and more to do with like the role of sex in human society where there's like a progressive liberatory vision where everyone should have birth control all the time and abortion is a fallback and people can have fun sex constantly and there's a, a conservative traditionalist worldview that's like People people shouldn't do that. People should get married. They should have babies. Life should not be fun. Um, and it, it's challenging, right? It's like there's a, a political imperative to, to sort of go in one way and then there's a another a push. Always, I think we've really seen in American politics on a bunch of issues for people to develop like more principled worldviews, which often makes it very difficult to have a sort of practical policymaking get done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one other way I think this study was interesting to me is that it really pushes back among uh, at some common conceptions we hold about abortion. So another poll that we did at Vox shows um, that people are much more likely to think the abortion rate is going up than down. That, And I think this is actually true of a lot of different kind of social factors that we tend to think crime rates are going up and teen pregnancy rates are going up when actually, you know, everything is always getting worse. Everything. Yeah. But it turns out a lot of things are getting better. Um, So, you know, we did a poll earlier this year where we asked people, you know, do you think abortion is more common, less common or about as common as it was a decade ago? 16 percent got the right answer saying, you know, it was less common. A lot of people weren't sure. Most people either said, you know, about the same or more. And it kind of speaks to, I think, how, you know, as we talk a lot about abortion as a political issue, that it's like very covered in the news. So I think I totally understand, you know, how it happens that you think it is going up and becoming more frequent as it is, you know, a very constant topic of debate. But then you look at this actual data and things are, I don't want to say much better, but at least abortion rates are lower, which is an outcome, you know, a lot of folks would like to see. I think there's some debate, definitely in the pro-choice 
community about, you know, does this reflect better access to contraceptives? Does this reflect this like wave of laws we've passed that make it harder for women to get abortions? Um, so I think there is a debate about, you know, is the lowering of the abortion rate a good thing? But there's certainly a misperception out there about what is happening with it that this study, you know, shows is quite different than the actuality. Was there in this study anything about because obviously within these different countries, within these different cultures, you had a lot of different kinds of abortion laws. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of equilibrium about how they're enforced. It it seems unlikely to me that it is really the case that no anti-abortion laws actually serve to cut the number of abortions. I mean, for instance, in Texas, they're effectively closing tremendous numbers of clinics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard for me to believe that won't on the margin have, have some effect. Now, maybe I'm wrong and, yeah. and, and maybe it'll all go back alley. But if you were someone who is against abortion looking at this and trying to ask, use it to ask yourself, okay, mm-hmm. aside from giving everybody a condom and every young woman a, 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 a birth control packet, um, what kinds of things are effective? Is there is there any guidance in this to that? Like, did it speak yeah. to one one set of policies working and another not? Unfortunately, it didn't. It just kind of broadly character, characterized like lax versus stringent abortion laws. I know there is research in the United States looking at these sort of things. But one of the things that makes the U.S. a little difficult to study is like how porous states are essentially regulating it. State borders are very porous. Like one of the things you've seen with Texas, for example, is more women um, going across state borders to get abortions. I actually I was at um, the conference for obstetricians and gynecologists earlier this week. And heard um, an interesting presentation from an abortion doctor in New Mexico whose clinic has seen a 400 percent increase in patients from Texas since um, HB2, that law you mentioned, wow. passed. So um, so there is definitely you – know, it, it's hard to study anti-abortion laws in the United States or like see the effects because it turns out to be a service women are willing to travel for and laws can often vary in somewhat small geographic areas. And I mean, we do see this in um, in a variety of health contexts, right? That people who are often quite bad at seeking uh, preventive care or just engaging in sound preventive health practice in their personal lives will quite aggressively seek out treatment once conditions become acute. It seems like what, what you're seeing in, in this paper essentially is that women who are pregnant and don't want to be will go to great lengths to exploit whatever access to abortion is permitted in Mm -hmm. in the legal framework, but that the the ease with which people can get effective birth control has a big impact Mm -hmm. on avoiding unintended pregnancies, but that the ease with which an actually pregnant person can mm-hmm. get an abortion, basically the, the elasticity of demand for abortion is low, but for birth control, it's high. And if we were all like perfect, foresighted gods, that would probably not be the case. People would, would jump through hoops to get their birth control too, but like they don't. Mm-hmm. And so it, it makes a both like technologically and, and legally, just changes on the contraceptive side have more of an impact on actual kinds of kinds of outcomes there because it's it's difficult to not just in the United States, but in the European Union too, it's hard to stop people from traveling. Yeah. All right. Another episode. Are we done? Leads. Another year older. <sighs> Another year older. Another year older. Yeah, thanks for thanks for listening into my old age, uh, weeds, weeds, people. 
Um, rate People us. The weeds. Rate, rate us on iTunes. Recommend us to your friends. Uh, review our podcast far and wide. Um, come back next week. I will say um, I have a very weedsy interview on the Ezra Klein show this week with Alice Rivlin. He's like the, the godmother of Washington budget wonks and was the founding director of the Congressional Budget Office. So if you are if you are into intense policy content, you, I think, will enjoy uh, that interview this week. Awesome. Thank you to our producers, AC Valdez and Afib Shapiro. This is a Fox.com and Panoply production. See you next week. Happy birthday, Matt. Stay weedsy. Boom. Oh.